I was glad when they said, let us go to Bethel Gary and praise the Lord. Amen, somebody. I give it up for Miss India. She's going to do some scripture reading this morning. Good morning, Bethel and guests. How are you? Okay, I'll be reading from the New Living Bible Translation, Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. So, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you keep it, you will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you turn from it and its evil deeds, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Amen. Okay, the Spanish version, which comes from Romans 8. <laughs> and it is um, from the Nueva Versión Internacional. And it reads like this. Por tanto, hermanos, tenemos una obligación. No es la de vivir conforme a la naturaleza pecaminosa, Porque si ustedes viven conforme a ella, morirán. Pero si por medio del Espíritu Santo dan muerte a los malos hábitos del cuerpo, vivirán. Porque todos los que son guiados por el Espíritu de Dios son hijos de Dios. Amen. Somebody give it up for the word of God. Amen. How everybody doing this morning? Everybody good? Everybody good in the hood? Cool, 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 cool. Y'all ready for the word of God? Amen and amen. Just a reminder, uh, Easter is around the corner. Uh, Good Friday service is April 19th, and we I'm not going to tell y'all who preaching, but man, I hear this guy is aerodynamic. Y'all are not going to want to miss it, so make sure y'all come out, and uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Anyway, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we could just laugh and just enjoy one another. Father, as we gather together as the body under your word, your authoritative word, Father, I pray that you would press upon our hearts the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you use me now in this hour, in this moment, to teach and to preach to your people. Father, but may it be you speaking through me, God, that life may happen in this place. God, we know nothing happens apart from you, and so we are totally dependent upon you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. And somebody said, Amen. Amen. All right, we got a tough one this morning. I want to tag my text this morning, Hunger Games, Hunger Games. News has it, a man grabbed a shovel to decapitate a snake, a four-foot-long western diamondback rattlesnake, after it spooked his wife. I mean, that's what I would have did as a man. If a snake spooked my wife, I had to, you know, handle that. And when he went to pick up the severed head, It sank its fangs into his flesh and released a nearly deadly dose of venom. About two miles into the drive to the hospital, her husband began having seizures, lost his vision, and unknown to them, began bleeding internally. So she met up with an ambulance and then a helicopter, which flew the 40-year-old to the hospital as his organs were already shutting down. Friends, sin is like the severed head of the western diamondback rattlesnake. The cross has stripped sin of its power, but sin still has limited power to hurt and destroy. Friends, sin is nothing 
to play with. Let me say that again. Sin is nothing to play with. But I'm afraid many Christians have played and toiled with severed serpent heads in their own garden of life. We acted as the 40-year-old man. We picked up sin, played with sin, thinking it was harmless only to find out that it still had its poisonous bite. Sin still wants to sink its fangs into the soul of every Christian and weaken him or her. It is important that when we're dealing with sin, when we're trying to kill sin, this headless serpent in our garden of life, that we use the right tools. You just can't kill sin with any old thing. You can't just play with sin. But you got to take it serious. And what I want to argue today is the way we kill sin, and I want you to lean in on this, the way we kill sin is by the Spirit. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, I don't know if you knew. But the way that you kill sin is by the Spirit. That neighbor was stuck up. They wasn't smiling. Turn to your other neighbor. Say, other neighbor, I don't know if you heard. But the only way. Y'all got to do it in y'all preacher. But the only way to kill sin is by the Spirit. All right, all right. Now that we know each other, we can keep on going. If we use any other method, we will be bitten and suffer severe damage from sin. But what does it look like to kill sin by the Spirit? What does it look like to kill sin by the Spirit? I want to give a recapitulation of last week. Last week, we learned that God dwells in us by the Spirit. If you remember The Russian Tao inside of us is God living in the inside of us. Um, Every Christian has the Holy Spirit within them. I thought I would have got an amen or something. I said every Christian, ain't it so good to have God chilling in the inside of you, kicking it with you every day? I don't know where I'll be if God wasn't in the inside of me. There's some things that I didn't say that I would have said if God wasn't in the inside. There's some stuff I would have taken that didn't belong to me if God wasn't in the inside of me. There's some peace that I wouldn't have if God wasn't in the inside of me. There's some joy that I wouldn't have if God wasn't in the inside of me. There's some friendships that I wouldn't have if God wasn't in the inside of me. My wife wouldn't be with me today if God wasn't in the inside of me. And so I think we ought to give God a praise that the Spirit dwells in the inside of every Christian. But, 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 if God does not dwell within, you are not saved. For God to dwell within, you must first believe that Jesus died for your sins on Calvary. That's why we sung it so long. If, one of, if some of y'all was wondering, when are we going to stop singing this song? We sung it so long because if he didn't die for our sins, God couldn't live in the inside of us. Faith in Jesus means righteousness from God. That is imputed righteousness. God gives us his righteousness when we trust in the Lord Jesus. God has completely forgiven you and declared you right before him. And that is the doctrine of justification. 
Now, the third person of the Trinity is free to do his work, which is sanctification. Y'all young ladies, make sure y'all come back. Amen. You got to call them out sometime. Make sure you come back. Amen. Amen. That's my family, so I can do that, you know. Y'all worry about y'all kids. I worry about mine. Now, they probably heard this last night when I was preaching it in the mirror to myself. Now, the third person of the Trinity, because of the finished work of the second person on the cross, which is Jesus Christ, he is now free to begin his work, which we call sanctification. Sanctification is God's process of making you like Jesus. Side note, just as your justification was not dependent on you, neither is your sanctification. And we error a lot because we think that justification is on God and sanctification is on us. But if you read scripture, both justification and sanctification is on God, right? The Holy Spirit, God, God, uh, God the Son dies for your justification and God the Holy Spirit gets to work bringing about your sanctification. Because God is within, fruit is produced in the believer's life. What are the fruits? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I don't care if you speak in tongues and can do backflips. If it ain't no love, joy, peace, and patience in your life, you ain't saved. Now, I ain't saying you got to have them perfectly, but there ought to be something. A person cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and fail to manifest this in some way. It is impossible Listen to me. It is impossible for God to be inside of you and you don't change. It ain't a matter of you might change. You will change because God is inside of you. If God dwells in a person, there will be ample evidence of the fact those who are saved can never be the same again. Any man being Christ is a new creature. The old is gone. The new is here. We have been dwelling sin in the inside, though. God is in the inside, but so is indwelling sin. And because God is in the inside and indwelling sin is in the inside, there's a battle. There's a war that goes on. That's why some of y'all think y'all crazy, but y'all not crazy, right? you like, I could have sworn I loved them yesterday. I don't know what's going on today. I had a desire for my word yesterday. I don't have it today. Because there is a war going on in the inside, and we have to understand, Christian, that we are at war. At war with who? The person next to you? No, at war with yourself. I've done more wrong to Dexter Harris than anybody has ever done to me. We have severed serpent heads everywhere in our hearts, ready to strike. But God, the Holy Spirit, hates sin. Friends, God hates sin. And what happens when you put two things in the same container that don't like each other? Come on, y'all, y'all, oh, y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all, uh, okay, y'all ain't got no family members you don't like? You ain't got no coworkers you don't like? What happens when you put people in the same room who don't like each other? They start scrapping, arguing, and fighting. It be going down. Right. So now in salvation, you have God in the inside and indwelling sin in the inside. Therefore, you have a war going on. Right. Reminds me of when I was uh, younger and uh, got these fish called beta fish. Anybody know about beta fish? And you were told never to put two of them in the same fishbowl. 
So, you know, being a young, you know, a young boy, and y'all, this is before I was saved. I ain't no fish killer, all right? Uh, I wanted to experiment, right? And y'all, I put two male beta men in the same fish bowl and woke up, and one of them was upside down. He was dead little Ray Ray. We buried him out back, right? But why do these two male beta fish fight? Because beta fish refuse to share territory. Friends, God refused to share your heart with anything else beside himself. And so there will be a battle to the death. God will battle sin until it is completely dead. You want to know what God is doing in you? He is at war with sin. No no doubt about it. But here's the fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Hear me well. Is that the believer wants God to have all of the fishbowl, not part of the fishbowl. The believer wants God to be the only beta fish that's swimming around in their hearts. And in fact, if we look at the text, God deserves all of your heart. Can I just put it that simple and that plain? God deserves all of your heart. God God don't need to beg. He doesn't need to give you more evidence. If the cross is not enough for you to comprehend that God needs more of your heart, I don't know what will. God deserves all of you, not some of you, not three-fourths of you, not part of you, but God deserves all of you, Christian. He says it right here. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Let me read that again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What are you talking about, Paul? I guess that's what I get paid to do to explain it. We have to be careful here. I want you to zoom in on the word flesh. Do you see it? He uses it twice in that verse, and what does he mean? The word flesh in the Greek, in the Greek, the word is sarx. It has a double meaning, like many other Greek words. This is why we need to do word studies before we come to interpretation. Can we have a little lesson here, class? A lot of times we want to apply our American understanding of words to a text, and we walk away with the wrong interpretation. Don't be out there arguing in the barbershop if you ain't did your homework. There's some cats that will eat you up and spit you out. You got to know what you're talking about. And so this word here, sarks here, has a double meaning. The first meaning that we see in scripture for the word sarks is flesh in blood. Flesh in blood. That's our human physical body. We are human beings. We descended from Adam. And I know you live with your spouse and you're not sure if they're human, but they are human no matter how they act. We are flesh and blood. Look at the verse where Paul uses this word to mean flesh and blood. He has used this word several times in the book of Romans. He used it in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Watch this. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Paul uses that in the fleshly human term. Romans chapter 2, verses uh, 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Paul is still talking about the flesh. He uses this this term the same way in Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, that's no human being, 
will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But secondly, Paul uses it in a figurative sense. The word sark refers to the nature of how this flesh and body acts and respond because of original sin. And so, so, so in this verse, Paul wants to use the word flesh to help us understand that he is talking about the rebellion of mankind. It is, our rebellion, it is our rebellious nature that moves away from God. It is the old way of thinking, doing things our way, going about it my way, disobeying the Ten Commandments, not liking God, being hostile to God, uh, acting in bitterness and selfishness. All of these things are fleshly ways of acting. We are by nature rebellious to God. Which is why God had to give us a new nature. Understand that your problem was not just making a choice to sin. Your main issue is that your identity was you were a sinner. And so God had to convert you by the power of the Holy Spirit into a saint so that you would now produce the things of God. Because being precedes doing. We do... Because of who we are. What we are causes what we do. One more time, Adam. The apple tree produces apples because it is an apple tree. Right? And so God had to change our nature, but God has chosen to save us in stages, and we are not fully what we will be. But when we see him, we will be as him because we will see him as he is. Paul is saying in verse 12, Christian, you don't have to give in to your old way of living anymore. Paul is saying, believer in the room, you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, who are indwelt with this spirit, hear me well, you do not have to obey your old way of living. You have been set free. Now, unbelievers do not have that option. All they can do is sin. Believers now have the freedom not to sin. We don't have to give in to our evil passions. Paul describes what evil evil passions are in Galatians 5.19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, outbursts of anger. Just keep looking at me. Just keep looking at me. Some of y'all getting hot right now that I say I, I sat on it. Disputes, decisions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Why? Why don't we obey these ways anymore? Paul says, because you don't owe the flesh anything. You don't owe the flesh nothing but war. 
Sin is no longer your master. Before Jesus, in your what? In your B.C., before Christ, you owe sin everything because sin was your master. But now, in your A.D., after your deliverance, you don't owe sin, Jack, because sin is not your master. What happened in salvation is sin was not off the throne and Jesus was enthroned. And so who you owe your allegiance to is the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. We don't owe sin anything. The power of God in salvation has dethroned sin and enthroned Christ, and Christ is our new master. But what does sin try to do? Sin is very, very, very tricky. Satan is very, very, very tricky. They try to lie to you, right? Can I bring up Lion King again? And Lion King, what happens? All the lioness think that Simba is dead, and Pride Rock looks a mess because they think the king is dead. Sin wants you to believe that the king is dead. But what happened when they found out that the king was alive? When they found out that the king was alive, bring it on, Scar. We got to fight now because we got a king on the throne. Friends, sin wants you to believe that the king is dead. But I came this morning to tell you that he is risen and he is alive in you. Scar was running the kingdom, and since Simba showed up, friends, we have to realize that Jesus is alive, and he is worthy of worship. The marvelous message of chapter 8 is that we don't owe the flesh anything, not one thing. Friends, the biggest thing that keeps Christians from revolting against sin is the lie that sin tells them that they are under obligation to obey it. We are no longer a slave to fear. Right? Sin wants us to believe that we have no power over it. Sin wants to tell you late at night when pornography is pulling on you, when lust is pulling on you, when anger is pulling on you, that you cannot defeat it, and it is lying to you. Not only can you defeat it, it's already defeated. It's already defeated. It's already powerless. But it wants you to keep paying on a bill that has already been paid. It's just like that bill you get in the mail and it got those extra charges on it. Where that come from? Reminds me of this guy in North Carolina. He received a notification of his upcoming water bill recently, which at first appeared normal with a bill of $189.92. But then he saw additional service charges with tacked on an additional million dollars. I don't know about you, but I ain't taking that many showers. I'm not taking that many baths. And if you come and move with me and my bill go up to that, you won't be that long. But he was confident that he hadn't used that much water in previous months. So he jokingly asked his water provider on Twitter if he could make installment payments on the balance. Francine wants us to believe that we have additional charges after the cross. Therefore, you're not good with God. Therefore, you are hopeless. Therefore, you are still in debt. But you tell sin, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. 
But as for you sin, I'm not paying you anything. When Christ beats you, I beat you. Friends, this is how you got to talk to yourself. I mean, literally, sometimes you got to go in the mirror and tell yourself, sin, Jesus has beat you. You will not have charge over my life. Am I the only crazy person in the room that talks to himself? You may catch me in the church singing. Ken tells me to shut up. <laughs> but I, I stopped singing, but when he leaves, I start singing again. Man control. <laughs> Some of y'all Friday folks know what I'm talking about. But you tell sin, if you can't hold Christ down, you can't hold me down. If you can't beat my Savior, you can't beat me. Because remember that Jesus, you are in the inside of Christ. So what is true for Christ is true for you. And so if Christ has beat sin, you have beat sin. If sin can't destroy Christ, sin cannot destroy you. Remember, we have to understand who we are in order to do what God requires of us. But if we proceed from trying to do without understanding who we are, we'll mess the whole thing up. Two fish in the bowl. Watch the verse. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now watch Paul as a wise theologian. Paul is... Once again, he's been doing this through the entire chapter 8. He is contrasting two lifestyles once again, as he has in the chapter already. The two, the two groups of people are those. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit. Now, notice that these two ways of living have different destinies. The flesh leads to death. The spirit leads to life. Any motivation there for you? The, the, the flesh leads to death. The spirit leads to life. I don't care how much they jazz it up. I don't care how much they make it look like they're having fun in their sin. At the end of the day, sin leads to death. Sin has one motive, and that is to kill you. Don't be friends with somebody who, I don't know about you, but I ain't friend of nobody who's going to kill me. Mm-mm. I ain't keep my eye. I'm not taking my eye off of you. I'm going to have one eye on you. Just like that, I'm going to be sleeping like this. I, I believe in God, but I got this eye on you right here. It's the Holy Spirit eye on you, brother. I am crazy. The Spirit, the spirit leads to life. The fleshly, I can't, can't be trusting cats like that. No, I'm just playing. The spirit, the spirit leads to life, and the flesh leads to death. He is summarizing what he has said in verses 1 through 11. The, the life ruled by the sin nature has its own fruit, and it is terrible ones in this life and the next. But if the life governed by the spirit is the opposite, it is the life and peace and the confidence and hope of the resurrection of eternal life. If we walk in the spirit, if we walk in the ways of God, if we delight in the things of God, if we press forward in the things of God, we are pressing towards life. We can be confident that God is in the inside of 
us. But if we are pressing towards the flesh, if we are going towards the world, if we are loving the things of the world, no delight for God, but delight for sin, then we can be confident that we are headed towards eternal death. Now, the second half of the verse really helps in what I said last week. Christians do not live however they want. Did you hear me? Christians do not live however they want. That is a life of sin. I made that statement after I said Christians can't lose their salvation. Here's why. Watch the argument of Paul. If we live a life of sin, Paul says we will die. And when he says die, he's talking about the second death under the final judgment. So Paul says if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But we know, according to verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. If there's no condemnation, that means that you won't die. We also know if you're in Christ, then the Spirit of God is in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, watch it, does not belong to him. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's Romans 8, 8. And we know if the spirit is in you, you will walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So the spirit is in the inside. You will walk according to the spirit. But Paul gives us another piece of evidence that we may know if we are in Christ. He, these are the ways that we answer whether we're saved or not. Examine yourselves in this moment. Hey, are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation over you. And if you are in Christ, the spirit is in you. Now, Paul is about to give us tangible evidence of proof of whether the spirit of Christ is inside of us. And watch it very, very, very closely. His next evidence of how you know if God is inside of you is contingent on how you feel about sin. It is contingent on your posture towards your own sin. He says this, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, eventually I'm going to get to how, how to kill sin. But first, I want to talk about how you ought to feel about sin. Christians should hate sin. In the fishbowl, we should hate the other beta fish, which is sin in the fishbowl. We should hate that fish. One word sums up how every Christian should feel about sin. Hate. You finally got freedom to hate something. You've been wanting to hate stuff for the longest. Hey, you should be rejoicing. I'm giving you something to hate. Right? I ain't got to hate on your haters. You ain't got to hate on nobody. You get to hate. Some of y'all got so much anger and stuff picked up in you. I'm giving you something right now. <laughs> Kill that fish, right? <laughs> the biggest evidence of salvation is hatred of your own sin. One of the biggest evidence that God is in the inside is that now I have a hatred towards my own sin, not the sin of others first. But the sin you see in your own heart, and I got to be real, 
I got enough sin in my life to keep me preoccupied that I ain't got time to be worried about nobody else. I mean, I don't know about you. I know we in church, but I got enough drama going on in my own soul. Anybody frustrated? You ever been frustrated with yourself? I know you got sick and tired of other people, but you ever got sick and tired of yourself? You be like, come here, self. We done been around this mountain one too many times. I'm about tired of you. Self said, I'm about tired of you. Well, I can't stand you. Well, I can't stand you. Whatever, whatever, whatever. We just, we just ain't going to live together. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, one of us got to die then. Well, well, bring it on then. I mean, it's easy. Right? We're quick to cover our own sin. But we're ready to go to war. On somebody else's sin. But it's hard to hate that old man inside of you. And in fact, to be living with that old sin is to be shacking up with it because you married to Jesus Christ. And so your faithfulness ought to go towards him. Christians ought to hate sin. Dexter Harris sin is who the sin I should hate the most. Now look at the verse so you can get the feel of where I'm getting this word hate from. He says, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Greek word for put to death is used 11 times in the New Testament. Nine times it is used for um, displaying killing or putting something to death. One example of this word that Paul uses, put to death, is Stephen. And many of you probably remember Stephen. He was the first martyr. He was the first person to die for the Christian faith. The same word here is, is what Paul used. Paul is saying that the Christian in sin are in bloody war. It's a word of execution. It simply means kill it. In other words, God is like when you see sin on sight, kill it. Don't ask questions. Don't negotiate and say, hello, sin, how are you? You want to go have a drink of coffee? You want to cuddle for a little bit? How about we just have a comment? Why don't you just stay for just a little bit, huh? Ah, just a little bit of sin. I ain't going to hurt none. Just a little drink of water. Ain't going to hurt none. No, Paul says when you see sin rising up in your heart, you don't negotiate, you don't talk, kill it. You ever had an enemy you didn't like? Bow, right on top, right in the mouth. Gone. Now he say take that anger that you had when you were not saved and use it toward your sin. Don't become homies with your enemy. Don't kick it with your enemy. Don't go out for coffee with your enemy. Do you sleep with your hired assassin? No. Jesus said the same. When look, look how Jesus puts it. Y'all think I'm playing. Look at what look, he said it right here. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Wait, wait, wait. Because some of y'all literally. Y'all serious about Jesus. We coming. Y'all be like this next week. Y'all be like this, praising like this. Now listen. Now don't you go home and go in that knife drawer and start hacking stuff off, all right? That ain't going to do nothing. 
All right, this is why we need to understand genre, right? We know in the taste of literal and figuratively, all right? Don't you go in there cutting your coming here headless next week. I, I was tired of it, Dex. I kept thinking about the wrong thing, and I just went for it. I, I listened to your pastor. I applied the word. Why are you going to do that for? Uh, you told me to. I ain't tell you to do that. Now, y'all witnesses, I ain't tell them to do that. They going to do that. That's on them. All right, you come in here with nubs, that's on you. All right? But Jesus is using this language so that he can press upon our hearts the seriousness of how we should attack sin. We need to cut it off. You need to kill it. I don't care what you got to do. Don't play with it. I like the way Ken Berry says it. He said, don't even stick your toe in the puddle of sin. Y'all know how we are. We just dibble and dabble. Just to, yeah. You just stick your toe in there. I'm just going to have a little bit, but somebody says sin keeps you longer than you want to, and it takes you further than you want to go. You ever been in that situation? I was just going to have a little, go, go back to them Oreos, right? I was going to have one double stuffed Oreo. A whole pack later, they go. You been eating them Oreos? Mm. You know when you're guilty, you be like, mmm. <laughs> White be like, you in there eating them fruity bells? Mmm. <laughs> All right, let me get focused. I was going to be a comedian before I was a pastor. Got to still get it out. Beta fish don't just fight. They kill until only one fish is alive in the bowl. We must fight until God is the only thing left in our life, the only thing that is left still standing. The perseverance you need to make it to the resurrection as a believer is war with sin. If you do not fight against sin, you will not be raised to life. Remember, sin wants your heart and ultimately your soul. Your soul is at stake. The cross is proof how much God hates sin. The cross is a bloody mess. The cross is not an, uh, a beautiful picture. It is a bloody mess of how God feels about sin, that he will crush his own son. And you think that God is going to come to peace with sin being in the inside of you, the same God that killed his son? God's not coming to peace with sin in the inside of you. God wants war in the fishbowl. And if we think we can have God and sin in the same fishbowl, we don't understand the cross. It's not going to happen. You will make a choice. You will either fight against sin or sin will be your master. Or the one way one theologian puts it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's kind of like when I felt that cold coming on me last week. I felt, you know, when you get the sniffles and all that and you feel it right here in the chest area. I was feeling it all up in there. You know what I did? I didn't say, oh, just a little bit of cold is all right. Not a little bit. No, I went to Walgreens. I got me a pack of emergency, and me and that cold went to war. Why? Because I don't want that cold in the inside of me. You got to leave. You can't stay here. You ought to have the same attitude towards your sin. You can't stay here. You got to get up out of here. I need more of God, more of his love, more of his joy, more of his peace, more of his patience, more of his kindness, more of his knowledge, more of his understanding. I need more 
more and more and more and more and more and more and more of him. Where's this scene coming from? It's not coming from the outside. It's coming from the inside. Jesus says this much in the Gospels. He said the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those who defile the man and those defile the man. For out of the heart, watch it, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile the man. But, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Sin comes out of your heart. Where's the battlefield? Your heart. Not the church. Not the government. Your heart is your biggest battlefield. But here's what I found. The biggest hang-up with most Christians is not so much a lack of hatred for sin, but a lack of knowing how to kill sin. Not a lack of hatred for sin, but a lack of knowing how to kill sin. You ever ask, how do I beat this thing? You ever ask, why do I keep failing? How do I defeat the indwelling sin in my life, pastor? How do I overcome this? Before I tell you how to kill sin, let me tell you how not to kill sin. There's a lot of wrong ways we try to kill sin. Number one, we try to kill it through perfectionism. Now, perfectionism says that, the Christian, that a Christian is able to arrive at a place where sin is no longer present in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I ain't met that joker yet. And I, and I believe that if you finally got sin out of your life, you ought to be glowing. And I ain't seen no jokers glowing lately. And so I believe that they're seeing still in their lives. I never met that person, and you will never meet them either. If somebody tells you that they don't sin no more, just pour a glass of water on top of their head and see how they react to you. It's going to be fighting, right? Cut them off in traffic and find out how holy they are. My bad, Pastor. I ain't know that was you that cut me off. <laughs> I just had a teach to get out of me. That's it. But if you watch the verse, Paul actually rejects that we can arrive at perfection in this verse. He rejects it. He says he uses the word put to death in a verb form that is ongoing, which means we are continually killing our sin. While it can be weakened and marginalized, Sin is with us until we die. We will struggle with this sinful body until we are buried and united to our Savior. There's always severed serpent heads in the fishbowl until we die physically. Number two, the other way that we try to defeat sin is what we call a second blessing. This approach says we need something more to get us to the next level an experience of the spirit or some other deeply spiritual moment that puts our lives on another and higher spiritual plane. We feel like we need something extra from God, but the Bible says that God has given you all things that you need. And the moment that you're saved, when God put the spirit in you, that's all that you need. And some of us are trying to recreate moments we had in the past and we have idolized our historical experience with God. But you don't need the God of the past. You need the fresh move of God in your life today. And he does that through the spirit. There's a lot of teaching out there that say you got to get a second feeling of the Holy Spirit. It's nowhere in the Bible. Number three, 
The other wrong way we try to kill sin is through legalism. Strictly speaking, legalism is redefining the gospel to where my obedience is the cause of my salvation. First and foremost, we think that we're saved because we are obedient. That's not how God saves us. He saves us because of the obedience of his son. But we also think that we're sanctified through our own strength. Here's where legalism also destroys because it says we are justified by grace and sanctified by our own efforts. You are saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace as well. That's legalistic sanctification. We cannot put down the sin nature in our own strength. We must yield to and be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The only way to kill sin is by the Spirit. Well, Dexter, how do you kill sin? By the Spirit. All right. Now it's time for us to put our thinking caps on. Because we got a war to fight. And we need to know how to fight it. So here it is. The right way and only way to kill sin is by the Spirit. If you try to survive as a Christian in any other way than by the Spirit, you will not survive. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I want to go very slow here because I want your brains to wrap around this. Who is stronger than God? No one. He is Alpha and he is Omega. He is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. He is the lion roaring on the inside. He is omnipotent. He has unlimited power. There's nothing that he cannot do. Is there any addiction he cannot overcome? Any lust he cannot overcome? Any pride he cannot overcome? Any selfishness he cannot overcome? There is nothing that God cannot do. If God is for us and in us, who can be against us? A lot of help from Dr. John Piper on this one. Number one, if you want to kill sin, you must set your mind on the things of the spirit. Number one, you must set your mind on the things of the spirit. Notice in Romans 8, 5 through 6, this is where I find it. Now watch how Paul is weaving. This is when you're reading your Bibles, you got to say, okay, God, where is the answer to this? And it's all through chapter 8. We see it up here. Watch Paul and watch what he does. Paul speaks of the flesh and the spirit. Now watch this. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit set their minds, underline this in your Bibles, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So the first step in killing sin is that I must set my mind on the things of the spirit. If you're going to kill sin by the spirit, you must set your mind on the things of the spirit. Now, here's my question. Dexter, what are the things of the spirit? What are the things of the spirit? There is only one other place in the New Testament where this phrase things of the spirit is used and it is in first Corinthians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 and in this book Paul is talking about the word of God watch it and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, here it comes, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul is saying that unbelievers do not receive the things of God, and the things of God is the Word of God. And that's why when we read things in the Bible, we rejoice, and unbelievers are like, what you're rejoicing about? They can't see it. So Paul says, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. So he is saying, you need to set your mind on the Word of God. Friends, you are not going to defeat sin if you don't have no Word down in the inside of you. If you don't know the promises of God, you don't know the Word of God, how are you going to defeat, uh, defeat Satan? How are you going to defeat sin? You can't do it. You need the word of God. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Set our minds on the things of the spirit. The things of the spirit is the word of God. Okay, pastor, we got you. I need to have the word to kill sin. But when I read the word, it doesn't seem to work. When I pray, it doesn't seem to work. Because, friends, it's not enough just to have the word. You must take the word in by faith. Very practically, what do you do to bring the power of the Spirit? How do we get the Spirit to move? We must have faith. We see this in Galatians 3, 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and work miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What happens is when the Word of God is preached, when we read it, when it's taught, the Word of God is living and active. You do know that, right? And it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so the Word is preached and when the believer hears it, the Spirit moves on the inside and say, give me that. I believe that. I'm standing on that. Oh yeah, amen that, Pastor. Oh yeah, I feel that thing. You're what you're feeling is the move of the Spirit and you take that thing and you say, I believe that thing. I'm standing on that thing. You don't walk out of here and say, I'm going to white knuckle it out. I'm going to do it with all my might. You say, no, God, I believe your word. I believe that you said it. I believe that you'll do it. Now watch it really fast because you know the only offense weapon that we have in the armor of God is the word of God. Let me give it to you like the word gives you. It says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What are you saying, pastor? You set your mind on the things of God. How do you set your mind on the things of God. You got to meditate on the word of God. When you meditate on the word of God, the spirit of God takes the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And when that sin rises up on the inside and you swing that sword, it kills sin over and over and over again. Hold on. Let me help you out because I don't want to leave here without you knowing how to do this thing. Here it is. Here it is. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, keep your heart away from the love of money. Well, how you going to do that? You know I got to pay my bills. You know that I need money. You know that money, money, money is all around us. But you know that Puff Daddy said, and it's just a side note, the more money we have, the more, money, more problems that we have. But let's set that aside because Paul says that it is important that we keep ourselves away from the love of money. Well, the Bible says that all you got 
to do is believe that he said that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so when money begins to rise up and say, I'm your only hope, you said, no, you're not, because the word of God said that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Get on up out of here. And what about when lust rises up in you and say, go ahead, take a second look and try to send you down that path. You say if a man even looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery in the, in, with her in his heart. You know what the spirit does? It takes that sword in the inside of your heart and cuts that thing down. But friends, here's the thing. Sin says that, hey, I got power over you. You ain't no good. You can't do nothing with me. You go over the Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and you quote to sin and you tell sin, sin will not have power over me because I'm no longer under law, but I'm under grace. I wish I had some people in the room that knew about the spirit in the word. You got problems in your life. Maybe you're scared. Sin been chasing you down. Though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. Oh, I've been messing up. I slipped yesterday. I don't think that I'll make it to the throne room of grace, but I came to tell you that he who had begun a good work in you shall bring it to completion. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm preaching now, Dexter Harris. Come on and bring it home. Check it out. I got a hunger in my soul. I feel like I'm not content. I feel like I feel like no matter what I do, I feel like a hamster on the wheel. Well, you need to go on over to John and you need to remind your soul that he's the bread of life in the living water. He is able to do. I'm, a, I'm afraid, Dexter, that I'm going to slip tomorrow. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the praise of his glorious presence. If you're a pastor, I'm scared. I'm going to lose my salvation. He gave you the spirit to seal you for the day of redemption. I wish I had some people in the room that knew that the word of God is able to do what he said he'll do. And because he's on the inside, because he lives in me, because he's risen, because he went up Calvary and they hung him high and they stretched them wide. I got the audacity to believe that we're going to be all right. I don't know about you, but I believe that we will win. And the reason I believe that we will win this morning is not because we're strong, not because we're mighty, not because we're cute, not because we came to church, not because we read our word, not because we pray. I believe that we're going to win because there's a God down on the inside of us that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you may ever think or even ask. God is able to do anything. And you ask me, Pastor, how do you know I'm going to win this fight against sin? I say, I know that you're going to win because the Spirit of God is down on the inside of you. Pastor, where you going with this? Friends, in math class, they used to have those signs. Those lesser and greater. The greater sign would always eat the lesser sign. Friends, if God is on the inside, sin is lesser, but God is greater. And so that means that if God is on the inside, whatever's inside of there that's eating away at my spiritual life, that's eating away at my affections, that's eating away at my pursuit, there's a bigger fish called God, and he's coming, and he'll eat sin away. God is greater. I know that we'll win because in the book of Exodus, 
Moses walked up to the Red Sea, and there was no way out. Pharaoh and the enemies were in hot pursuit. All the odds were against them. There's a little movie called Hunger Games, and before they would go out into the battlefield to fight for their life, the overseer of the battle would say, may the odds ever be in your favor. In other words, he was saying that I hope that you win. But friends, before we ever entered any battlefield, the favor of God was on our side. And God's favor on your side ain't like mankind's favor on your side. When mankind's favor on your side, you may win. But when God's favor is on your side, though things be against you, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what's sin against you. Doesn't matter if lust is against you. Doesn't matter if anger is against you. Doesn't matter what you're going through. God is on your side. The odds are already in your favor. The battle is already won. So many defeated Christians. So many of us with our heads down. Unaffected. Our zeal is gone. Our joy is gone. We've forgotten who's on the inside. But this morning, we're going to be reminded that God is on the inside. What's been beating you up? What's been having you in a stronghold? What are you scared of? God is on the inside. 